Well, thank you. Um, happy to to be here with you tonight. And um, you know, normally we love to come visit you from time to time down there in Loma Linda, but uh, obviously it's not working out this time. But uh, you know, I'm going to share with you a message called the science of survival, and we're going to look at some things now. I was talking with my brother-in-law just maybe a week ago, and my brother-in-law just finished school at Andrews University Seminary, and he's going to be pastoring soon, but he, they've been staying with us a little bit in the transition before they move on to his pastorate that he's going to be starting soon. And while he's working at Lowe's, uh, he had shared with me, he had read on Facebook, a friend of his, uh, a couple, few weeks ago, said, wow, man, I'm here in Chicago. He said, in at our price of lumber has doubled. And then my brother-in-law just a week ago tells me working at Lowe's, he said, you know, actually I, uh, he said at our Lowe's here, he said the price of plywood has tripled. And I'm thinking, what on earth, what's happening? You know, tripling the price of plywood. And, and I said, I, I said, what's going on? He said, well, um, think about it. He said, you've got fires in California. You've got hurricane, you know, in the, in the Gulf. And then you have COVID too, which people have been building like crazy during the midst of COVID. So you have all these things together, like a perfect storm. And it's, you know, potentially tripling the price of building materials. And, and as he said all that, we're just talking about it, just like it's just common talk. But then as, as we said, it, I said to him, it's funny, we're we're talking like about the signs of the times and we're not trying to talk about the signs in the times. We're just talking about what's happening around us as like present day news is what the Bible prophesied. Now, you know, when we think about this, we think of what Jesus said there in, in Matthew chapter 24 and verse beginning of verse five, you know, that this is the passage where Jesus is sharing the signs of the times. And he says, for many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. Now it's interesting because uh, you think, well, we don't have a lot of wars going on right now. So, I mean, yeah, there are some going on in the world right now. You've uh, probably heard Armenia and Azerbaijan are at war right at this present moment. But that seems so far away. Like uh, for many of us, unless you have an Armenian background or something, you, you know, that just seems like a world away. <clears throat> but you may have heard like in the news, people are talking about a potential coming civil war in the United States. And you think like, that sounds so extreme. Come on, come on. I'll get back to that in just a moment. Uh, but just, just tuck that one in the back of your mind. So even though that seems far off, we'll, we'll get right back to that in a moment. Uh, so Jesus says, see that you be not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines. One of the side effects you may know of COVID is that we're being told that many nations are struggling much more with food scarcity or food insecurity because of COVID, not necessarily the disease itself is causing it, but because of uh, the, the strain on the infrastructure, the difficulty with society and not being able to, some countries have been kind of 
standoffish and not exporting their grains and so forth as much like Russia. And so this is something they said, actually, there's a potential, I don't know if it'll happen or not, but there's a potential that more people could die from starvation because of the side effects of COVID, not COVID, not, not the disease itself, but just because of the difficulty in, in commerce. And so, and then, and pestilences. Well, obviously we're living in the midst of a pandemic, so we understand this right now. And earthquakes, um, well, we don't see those anymore, right? Well, obviously we do see earthquakes too, but in diverse places, all these are the beginnings of sorrows. Now, we probably, many of us have heard the term sorrows in the new translations and in the Greek, are this word sorrows is birth pangs. So just like women uh, who go through their contractions leading up to birth, the birth pains, they become more frequent and more intense, so too with these signs of the times. Now, thinking about this, uh, in Luke 21, verse 28, speaking in the context of the signs of the times, Jesus says, and when you see these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. So the signs the times are not to simply strike people with horror. Yes, we recognize them. Yes, they are troubling signs, but these are to actually get us to look up, not look down, not become despondent and give up and angry and hateful and hating other people who disagree with us, but rather we are to look up because we recognize that our savior is drawing nigh. So we can actually have a joy that Jesus is coming again. And we need to recognize as these things are taking place, yes, they are signs. Yes, they are, they are just small pictures of what is coming, but in, I don't think we're going through the worst of it. But we're getting these pictures, and this gives us an idea that we need to lift up our heads. We need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus in this time. In Matthew 24, 12, still within the signs of the times, this context here, it says, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax or grow cold. And if you just stop right there and think about that particular sign at the time, there is no question we're seeing this fulfilled around us. There is becoming a hard-heartedness in society that is unbelievable. If somebody has one, per, they're on one end of the political spectrum and somebody else is on the other side, if they disagree with each other, it used to be like when I was younger, people would disagree. They would even maybe bicker a little bit. But in the end, you could still be neighbors. You could still be friends. You could live on the same street and you didn't worry about it. You, you let those things, they were like water under the bridge. Not now. Now we live at a time where love has literally grown cold and maybe it could grow colder and I'm sure it will, but it is clearly growing cold. People, if you disagree with them, they hate you. And many of them will actually want you dead and say, I wish you would die. And, and not only that, they don't want you to have a job and to be able to have finances. And that, that perspective of you shouldn't have a job, you shouldn't be able to make a living because you disagree with my political perspective. And I'm not talking about either side. We're just simply saying, this is the spirit of Antichrist. This is the spirit of Antichrist, friends, and we don't want to be caught up in that spirit. We don't want to be the ones who hate other people and, and hope they can never make a living. We are to love our enemies and pray for those even that persecute us. 
So friends, if we're getting caught up in the hatred that is taking place in society right now, we are fulfilling prophecy that our love is growing cold. And we are told that we need to gain warmth from the coldness of those around us. So as others are growing cold, instead of that making us cold and hateful and spiteful and hating who we perceive to be our enemies, we need to be loving even those who spitefully use us and persecute us. It should actually stir our souls. We should care for those who are angry and hateful in society right now, not just hating somebody because they're angry. So you may have heard this. We are actually going to have a civil war. We're going to have a civil war in this country and in other countries. We're told this. And notice this is written in 1899, years after the Civil War. This is not a message about the Civil War. The Civil War in the United States ended in the mid-1860s. And so notice this is years later than this. In India, China, Russia, and the cities of America, thousands of men and women are dying of starvation. Well, there aren't probably thousands dying of starvation today, but it's going to happen. The moneyed men, because they have the power, control the market. They purchase at low rates all that they can obtain, and they sell at greatly increased prices. This means starvation to the poorer classes and will result in a civil war. It's interesting right now that we're living with people talking. I accidentally stumbled upon a page uh, on, on Facebook. Literally, the, the reason, I'll back up a minute. How did I stumble upon it? I was not looking for this at all. I wasn't looking for stuff about civil war. Uh, I have a, a YouTube channel that's relatively new that I started, I don't know, a month and a half ago called Health and Homestead. We're told that we need to warn people about what is coming on the earth. And I'll show you that quote in a moment. But and I've, I've thought about that quote for years and years, warn people about what is coming on the earth. But that sounds crazy. That sounds fanatical. And yet it always came back to my mind, like warn people about what is coming upon the earth. And so, you know, uh, that kind of that's part of the idea of what I'm doing on Health and Homestead is sharing messages about country living, about the Bible, but also practical tips of gardening and, and living in the country and what it's like. And so, but just talking about that. So, so I was posting these simple things that I'm sharing on just a bunch of different groups on YouTube, just for the ability. And when I say these groups, secular, I mean, there's atheists, I'm not just, I'm not producing these directly for just Adventists. I mean, we're doing this for the general public, but so I, I go on one of these groups and just, just to post one of these things. And I see they're straight up talking about civil war. And I had no idea. I wasn't trying to join some group <laughs> when I saw it. I was like, oh man, what am I, what am I even doing here? But so we see this. And then I just saw some more information in, in the news today talking about, about this, that a bunch of society right now thinks there's going to be a civil war. Now, whether there will or not, there will at some point, whether it comes very soon or not, I have no idea. I, I mean, I can't imagine, but I can tell you this. A year ago, this, this quotation here, this quotation, you'd be like, how could that happen? And notice this is not a racial civil war. This doesn't say it's a racial issue. It's a financial issue. It is from different classes, financial classes rather than this is not a race war. And so, so it's, it's, not it's not that perspective. But here's the thing. A year ago, you would have been like civil war. Come on. Americans are too civil for that, right? 
And right now you're seeing, no, 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 no. Society is so polarized that we're beginning to, like you could say, okay, I could see, maybe not tomorrow, but I could see with the hatred, with the anger, with the animosity that this, I could actually see this happening. And so notice this, you probably heard this quotation. You probably, if you haven't read the book, Country Living, I would challenge you to read it. It's like 32 pages. You could literally read it tomorrow afternoon. I mean, it's a very short book. You can look at it on your app, on your phone, uh, but it's called Country Living, 32 pages. And it says, the cities are to be worked. This is written in 1902, 118 years ago. The cities are to be worked from outposts. Said the messenger of God, shall not the cities be warned? Yes, not by God's people living in them but by their visiting them to warn them of what is coming upon the earth. For years, I've thought of that last part. People might be just caught up in the rest of it. Like, oh, God's people are to live in the country 118 years ago. Uh, but the point here is for me, I mean, not, not the point for everybody else, but the point that kept coming back to my mind is we need to warn people about what is coming upon the earth. And I've been someone who shares the message of the Bible. And I think, man, like sharing, to, letting people know what is coming upon the earth and um, that's one of the reasons I want to be a part of doing something like actually sharing. Now, just to give the little side note, we're not to be fanatical about this. Don't just run out of this out of the city and, and go buy a house and not know what you're doing and not know how to make a living. And, and uh, you could end up hating it. Uh, I was just talking with someone yesterday about that, that right now houses are being just snatched up in the country, even deep rural places. I was just looking on Zillow and out of the top 40 like 44 newest houses in the country. When it's, I, I say new, newest listed, They're, they could be 70-year-old houses, but I'm just talking about the newest listings on rural properties in deep country in a certain area that I was looking at that like 20, I don't know, 23 of them were already either sold or in the process of being sold within potentially days of them going on the market. And you don't see that happening in deep rural areas country properties take a while to sell typically. I mean, sometimes a real good one will go quickly, but they're not being like the majority of them are not sold within days. And that's actually happening right now. And it's not, now I shared this on another mess, this, not that point, but at this point, uh, a friend of mine just, and his wife, his wife's an ER doctor and he works in, um, what would I say? Like computer work. I could just simply say that. But nevertheless, he told me that they moved from, from a small city, really a suburb in Texas, to a country area in another state. And the, the realtor that they were working with, he said to them, are you guys Seventh-day Adventists? And they said, yeah. How do you know? He said, tons of Seventh-day Adventists are moving into the country right now. I thought, wow, that's interesting that even the realtor noticed it. But it's not just Adventists. I mean, people, people of all different persuasions are moving out because they're thinking this, this world is changing and I don't think it's safe to be in the city anymore. And so I do fear that many of them will do what we were told not to do, and that is to just just move out of fear. Now, there can be a time where it's like legitimate, hey, I got to get out of here. I mean, Lot should have gotten out. Fear might have been a good motive to get out, although he wasn't. He actually was wanting to stay and stay and stay until like the angels like dragged him out of the city, right? And so um, some, some of us may be that way. Like we got to wait until the angels just like drag us out of the city or maybe somebody else does. But, but the reality is God's people should be paying, they should be praying, God, you show me when. Help me not to go ahead of you but Lord, help me not to go behind you. 
not, not to, when I say go behind, I mean, not to go behind your will, help me to follow your will when you tell me to go. And so we're told, should God's people not warn the cities? Oh, absolutely. They should warn the cities, but not by living in them. We were told, especially in these last days. Now, here's the thing. We talked about the fact that people are, are polarizing. Why are they so polarized? Well, I put a picture on the screen that might be one of, one of the reasons, right? I'm not saying it's the only reason. There's more than this. But social media, I believe, is one of the biggest factors for the polarizing aspect of society. That actually, these corporations are... There, some of it may be unintentional. Some of it is intentional. They actually can manipulate our minds. They even said so. You, some of you uh, probably remember just a few years ago, they did a study on Facebook where they didn't tell you they were studying you, but they were manipulating minds. And it finally came out. They said, okay, yeah, we did this. You, this, this is it. You know, here's in Forbes talking about it. This is not just in case somebody's knowing. Uh, doesn't know Forbes is not like a conspiracy theory website, right? This is like a, you know, uh, you know, you might learn about finances and different things like this. But so Forbes says Facebook manipulated 689,000 users emotions for science. You remember this where what happened was what they did, they, they could choose what, what would come, they do choose what comes into your feed. And so you're scrolling through and you're looking through and they, let's say you're having just a fine day, you're happy, you're posting positive things, communicating with your friends, and they could start just showing you negative, 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 negative feed. And all of a sudden, they found that they could change your mental state. They could change your emotions by what they chose to show you. Now, we knew this. The Bible gives us the principle. Now, it doesn't say this word for word, but 2 Corinthians 3.18, the principle there is that by beholding, we become changed, right? And so uh, it's not word for word there, but 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, that's the passage where we get that principle. And so they realize, scientists know this, this is nothing new, monkey see, monkey do, right? And we're affected by what we look at. And so they did this. Now, this, they can actually kind of cause you to think, not totally, you may still stick with one idea or perspective, but they can still lead you down a negative hole. And Check this out. This is very interesting. Talking about targeted marketing. So, well, consider the controversial study published last year, not by Facebook researchers, that said companies should tailor their marketing to women based on how they felt about their appearance. That marketing study began by examining the days and times when women felt the worst about themselves, finding that women felt most vulnerable on Mondays and felt the best about themselves on Thursdays. Well, the marketing study suggested companies should concentrate media during prime vulnerability moments, aligning with content involving tips and tricks, instant beauty rescues, dressing for success, getting organized for the week and empowering stories. Concentrate media during her most beautiful moments, aligning with content involving weekend guides, uh, weekend style, beauty tips for social activities and positive stories. The Facebook study combined with last year's marketing study suggests that marketers may not need to wait until Mondays or Thursdays to have an emotional impact. Instead, social media companies may be able to manipulate timelines and news feeds to create emotionally fueled marketing opportunities. So they realize, and they're telling us, hey, we can do this. 
we can make you feel a certain way. We can make you feel beautiful. We can make you feel ugly. We can make you feel down. We can choose how you feel about yourself and we could lead you down a pathway so that we could sell you something that maybe you didn't even necessarily want but because we, we created the emotional state inside of you so that we could sell you what we wanted you to buy. Now, if they could do that, could they not also change perspectives or pit us, even if we are in a perspective, down that, that, per, that, per, that perspective even deeper so that we will be more prone to follow some, uh, you know, ideas or whatever. Now, I'm getting kind of vague here, but this is the thing. You may be thinking, Chad, this sounds cons conspiratorial. No, no, no. I'm just reading what they say they do. We're, we're not talking about some, some secretive group somewhere out there. This is the open idea of what they do to change our minds, to, to lead us in the direction. And here's the thing. Is there a conspiracy? Yes. And what do I mean by that? There is a devil who conspires with potentially millions of angels that we call demons to try to lead us away from Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about some human conspiracy that, oh, we got to watch out for the, the people hiding behind the bush. No, the, what I'm saying is simply this. The devil, if, if humans have figured this stuff out, do you think the devil doesn't know? And can he use people to pit us in factions where we can become so hateful and have such animus toward each other that we are taking our minds off of Jesus and we're buying the bill of goods that the devil has planned for us? There is a conspiracy and it's done by the devil himself, regardless of if humans are doing things or maybe all these things that I just read to you are lies. Maybe it's not true. Maybe they didn't manipulate people. Maybe they were just kidding, but they weren't kidding. They, yes, they can do it. But obviously the devil did something similar to this in heaven. Satan manipulated the minds of a third of the holy angelic beings. He infected their minds with a thought process that led them step by step into a darker area, a darker place, till they got to the point where their hearts were hardened and the love of many waxed cold. And they had to be thrust out of heaven. This is exactly what the devil wants to do with God's people in the last days, whether of our faith or of others that he wants our love to grow cold, that we're so angry with the enemies that we disagree with, that we will hate them to the point where the devil wins. It doesn't matter what side you're on. If you begin to hate the other side, the devil won. The devil has won at that point. Now, I was sitting at ASI a number of years ago. I don't remember how many years ago. It may not have been that many, but I was, yeah, it's been a few years, actually. So I was sitting at ASI, and... Sharissa Fong, who's a friend of ours, uh, she was speaking. We weren't, I didn't know her well then. Actually, I didn't even know her then. But um, so Sharissa was speaking and it was the main auditorium. So everybody's there. I don't know, a couple thousand people or a few thousand or whatever come to ASI. And we're in the main meeting and, and she's speaking. And all of a sudden, ding, 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 the fire alarm went off. And you know, when the fire alarm goes off, what does everybody do? absolutely nothing right nobody does anything when that when the fire alarm goes off you just kind of like sit in your chair and do nothing well one of our friends who is an er doctor started walking out and he walked in front of us and uh we're seeing him walk out no, almost nobody's leaving and he he said to us no he didn't say anything actually my wife said to me she said do you think we should follow him 
And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? So we, we hopped up and we walked out and just started talking with him. And, and then he told us that he had been reading a book called the survivors club. And, um, it's basically research on who survives emergencies. Uh, ben Sherwood wrote the book and he said, you should read it. So I went and bought the book, read the book, great book, fantastic book. But, um, but it really gave me an understanding that I hadn't learned before. So in, in this book, it talks about researchers have investigated the responses that people have in, in kind of like death-defying emergencies, like sinking of ships or maybe burning buildings or crashing planes. How do people respond? And they came up with what's called the 10-80-10 principle. So the, the first 10%, they're in no particular order, but the first 10% that I'm talking about, 10% uh, of people, like for instance, if a ship is going down, it's sinking, 10% of people will go absolutely hysterical. They will be detrimental to themselves and to others. They go nuts. They go haywire. And so you obviously don't want to be a part of that 10% of the people. So those people just like, they'll even damage themselves. He, he gives a story of this guy who was on a ship, true story of this man who, and maybe his name was Gary. I forget. I just read it, looked at it again. But so he's on the ship and, and this ship, it was called the Estonia in 1994, began to sink. He was on it. He was on the deck. Many people down below never got out. They were lost, but he, he was on, on deck uh, and the ship was kind of, it was tilting, but it wasn't correcting. And he realized, oh no, normally a ship, if it turns, you know, it kind of goes back. Well, he realized we're going down and it continued to go further and further. Long story short, he began to watch people and there was another guy with him and he, he they, they were looking at other people and other people were just standing around. Some people were going nuts, but then the 80%, the 10% go hysterical, 80% do basically nothing. And they just wait for somebody to tell them what to do. And he, he was watching people and he talked to another guy. He's like, why are people just standing around? Don't they see we're going to sink? And people were doing nothing. They literally just sunk with the boat. Didn't even try to do anything. They literally just died. And 80% of people will really just wait for somebody to tell them what to do. And in great catastrophes, many times somebody isn't there to tell you what to do. And so then the last 10% of people actually they, they think rationally and they seek for a way out of the situation. They seek for a way out of the situation. So you have 10% hysterical, 80% just kind of like they just do very little and uh, maybe wait for somebody to tell them what to do or 10% people actually actively look for a way out. They're thinking logically, methodically, what can I do? If I do this, this will happen. If I do this, uh, that will happen. And so they're looking for a way out. And I really believe that we need to learn because right now I believe we're being programmed. Whether it's by the devil or whether it's by people in society, we are being programmed by looking at things for so many hours that, that we're just being told how to think. And we're being divided into largely two groups. There might be some other people out there, but there's largely people are just being told what to do. You have, if you're on our side, you think this way. If you're on our side, you think this way. And, and people just kind of adapt to these things and then go along with, with what they're told to do. But in the emergencies that are coming upon the earth, I really believe that we need to be thinking men and women. 
And we need to be training our children to be thinking individuals, not just telling them all the time what they have to do, but helping them to think through the process of what to do. Ask them, hey, what would you do in this situation? Uh, actually help them to be thinking and understanding. And now check this out. This is powerful. How to truly think for yourself. Every human being, we are told, this is so powerful. Every human being created in the image of God is endowed with a power akin to that of the creator, individuality, power to think and to do. The men in whom this power is developed are the men who bear responsibilities, who are leaders in enterprise, and who influence character. It is the work of true education to develop this power, to train the youth to be thinkers and not mere reflectors of other men's thought. In general, education in 2020 trains you to be a reflector of other people's thoughts. I know we try to act like, oh, it's, you know, higher education is supposed to be a place where you, you open your mind. It is not that much at all. It is today. It is, a, it is, you are, there's a certain line we want you to believe. And this is what the way you ought to believe. And the reality is this is not the biblical mindset. God does have a plan for our lives. He does have a thought process. And when we yield our lives to him, he can actually help us to be truly thinking free people. Following God does not put you into slavery, following anything else makes you a slave. It makes you a slave to the enemy, but check this out. So it's, it, is the, it is the work of true education to develop this power, to train the youth to be thinkers, not mere reflectors of other men's thought. Instead of confining their study to that which men have, have said or written, let students be directed to the sources of truth, to the vast fields open for research in nature and in revelation. So I could say maybe nature could be looking at perceiving, spending time in nature. Nature actually makes you more, uh, it gives you more common sense. When you're separated from nature, many people lose common sense. I shared this in, a, in another message, but it's where it bears repeating. They did, they did a survey of young people that lived in the city and young people that lived in the country. And one of the questions they asked was, they said, do you agree with this statement, yes or no? And this is the statement. If what I believe offends somebody else, then what I believe is wrong. If what I believe offends somebody else, then what I believe is wrong. And young people in the city are six times, 600% more likely to agree with that statement, which tells us that they are, they've lost common sense because that statement is inherently false. It is in and of itself an error. That, that, that statement cannot be, it cannot be true just by virtue of the fact that it's self-contradictory. A statement that is self-contradictory cannot therefore be true. What do I mean? Here's the thing. So if what you believe offends somebody else, what you believe is wrong. So if, if you believe in God, that offends an atheist, therefore it's wrong. And if an atheist believes there is no God and that offends a Christian, then the atheist is wrong. If you believe two plus two is four and somebody else believes it is not and you offend them, then it is not true anymore. Two plus two, therefore, is no longer four. Do you understand what I'm saying? That doesn't make any sense. Somebody offending somebody doesn't make something right or wrong. Should we try to be offensive? No, that shouldn't be our goal. Although Jesus did offend people. And if you don't believe that, go read John chapter six. He even said, doth this offend thee? 
And the clear answer was yes. He offended people. Truth sometimes hurts. Now, we shouldn't go out and seek to be hurtful. We should always try to win souls and woo souls and be, and be winsome as much as possible. But yet truth will offend some people. And if we are afraid, if we have that mentality of, oh, I have to just make everybody happy, you can't make everybody happy. That's impossible. So how do we have our own thoughts how do we think for ourselves? It says we are directed to the source of, of truth, to the vast fields open for research in nature and revelation. Let them contemplate the great facts of duty and destiny, and the mind will expand and strengthen. Instead of educated weaklings, institutions of learning may send forth men strong to think and to act, men who are masters and not slaves of circumstances men who possess breadth of mind, clearness of thought, and the courage of their convictions. Powerful. So spending time in nature, spending time in the word of God, these two things can help us to actually think for ourselves, be thinking and acting people. And that's what we need to be to be a part of that 10% who survive. And when I say survive, I'm not talking about survivalism like, oh, I'm going to make it. I'm going to, I'm going to make it in the last days like that. I mean, but I mean, yes, I want you to make it in the last days. I want you to be saved. Whether you're, whether you die or not, the true survival is having your heart right with Jesus. And if we let somebody else do the thinking for us, we're not going to be in that 10%. And I'm not saying it's 10%, but you understand what I'm talking about in the illustration here. So notice, how do we get to this point? How do we, how do we have this great understanding? Psalms 119, 98 through 101 tell us, Thou through thy commandments hast made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. Why? Why is that? For thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I have kept thy precepts. I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep thy word. Friends, if we want to have more understanding than our enemies, more understanding than our teachers, we need to spend time in the word of God, the standard of truth that God has given to us. We also see in Proverbs 27, 12, it says, a prudent man foresees the evil and hides himself, but the simple, the simple-minded, pass on and are punished. Think about that. Think about that in the context of the 10-80-10, that a good chunk of people, they may even see the evil around them, they may even see the sinking ship, and they do nothing, and they're punished for it. I don't mean eternal punishment, but they sink to the bottom of the ocean at some point, right? And so, but, but some people, they foresee the evil and they do something about it. They hide themselves from the situation. And, and I'm, once again, I'm not talking about just survivalism, but we're talking about spiritual survivalism. Will we be, will we be one of the faithful in the end or will we just do what the crowd does? And I think about this. I think about certain people. You probably think of, a hundred, I don't know, people in the Bible. There were, there were, most people follow the crowd most of the time. And then there are a few people, a few people that, that stand up against the crowd. And those are the people in the Bible that you remember their names. You generally don't know the names of the multitude. Sometimes you do. Sometimes we see a part of the multitude and, and they're lost. But in general, the ones that you think about, the ones that, 
ring a bell in your mind that you never forget often are the ones who stood though the heavens were falling around them as it were. I think of David. I just went and read that story again today. And he was in, there, there was this, this valley with two mountains on the side. And I think it was Valley of Elah or something like that. And, and, and there's this valley between, and, and there was the, the great champion, Goliath of Gath. And this man is, is screaming out and he's screaming out obscenities and, and cursing the God of Israel. And the Israelites see this massive hulk of a man and they're terrified. They're shaking in their boots, literally. And this young shepherd boy comes along. He sees this. He hears this guy doing this. And this guy's insulting his God in front of all these men. And he, he is troubled. He's thinking, what? I can't believe we're allowing this man to profane our God like this. Why doesn't somebody do something about it? But nobody dares. Everybody is frozen. In essence, they're probably, most of them are in that 80% group. Some of them might have been so crazy, we don't, we don't read about them. But here comes this young, this young boy, literally, this young shepherd boy. Has he spent time in the word of God? Surely, surely he meditated on God's word. Has he spent time in nature? Yes, he has. And here he is, and he, he sees this taking place, and you know the whole story. I won't go into the whole story, but ultimately he goes down to the, to the brook, and he grabs some stones, and he puts them in his scrip. And he, he goes toward this man, and the guy starts laughing. He's like, what? What? Uh, you, you come against me with, you know, sword and spirit? He said, look at this, you know, this child, basically. He's just mocking him. He said, I'll, I'll, I'll throw your body to the birds of heaven. And David says to him, basically, you know, you come against me with sword and spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord, our God. He has communed with God, communed with God in nature. How do we know he communed with God in nature? He had been the shepherd. He had grabbed hold of the beard of a, of a lion and killed the thing. He had fought a bear for some sheep. This man was, he had communed with nature, right? He had been there. And, and so here he is. And what's so powerful, when you actually read in, in Samuel, the, what it literally says, it doesn't just say, because I've had this picture, you know, he runs toward Goliath and he does. It, it says that he's like, but it doesn't say that. What it says is he ran toward the army. So, it, it, I mean, this is like an incredible movie. Here's this young boy with nothing but a sling running at an entire army. This is unbelievable. So, I mean, just, just get the picture. He's running at an army, and obviously, ultimately, he strikes the head of the, the giant, and he dies. And he guts off his head, you know, gory kind of picture. But, uh, but that's, that's what happened. And so this young man, he was a part. He, was, he wasn't a part of the 10%. He wasn't even a part of the 1%. He was the only individual who was willing to stand for the right at that time because he had communed with God and he had spent time in nature. Now, this next person, I don't know how much time in nature, although he was in nature at this moment. I think about this next person, not Jesus, you see there. Yes, he did spend time in nature. But I want to look before we talk about Jesus at the guy on Jesus' right here, our left, the thief on the cross. You may not think of him like this, and I, I don't know about nature, although he's, I guess he's outside right now getting fresh air and 
what have you. But nevertheless, other than that, that's a little bit of a stretch. But this man is dying for his sins, literally. He is hanging on a cross. He has been a part of the crowd. He has been a part of the life of sin. He's been led away into sin. And he just followed the crowd. And it got him to the point where he was lost. Totally, utterly lost. Here he is at a point in his life where there's no hope of eternal life. And he's hanging on a cross. His, his, his physical life, his temporal life is hopeless. He's, he can't get off the cross. He, he can't do anything about his circumstances right now. He is trapped. There's no way out. And in the midst of this emergency that he is in, emergency as he's thinking it through, at first he even seems to mock Jesus along with the other man that was crucified with them. But then he begins to, begins to think, and he sees all the people mocking him, sees the, the priests, he sees the Pharisees, the Sadducees, he sees the crowd in general mocking him, people, people insulting his lowly birth. He sees all of this taking place, and surely, surely he knew, he knew who Jesus was. He was not ignorant. Everybody knew who Jesus was by this point. Jesus' name, I mean, listen, if somebody healed entire towns and villages, do you think that wouldn't get around? For sure. So he knows about the healing work of Jesus. He's probably even heard him himself. And here he is, and, and now this man I'm sure it was kind of a surprise, like, why is this guy being crucified with me? Like, what's, what's he done? And, and he begins to see him, and he begins to see the whole process of his, maybe his flogging, his beating, being whipped, and, and his mercy, and his kindness, and a look of compassion on his face as Jesus is even being nailed to a cross. He prays, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And as all of this is flooding into the mind of this thief hanging on a cross with no hope of safety, no hope of escaping this emergency, but then he sees his mind is clear enough in this moment to find the only way out. And that way out was Jesus. And he turns to him and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you can, I can just imagine the whole crowd being silent, listening. What? What's this? he's calling? He's calling him Lord. And I'm sure everybody in their heart, I imagine the Holy Spirit impressed every heart there for a moment. You know he is Lord, don't you? You can see it on his face. You can see it in his actions, in his compassion, in his love. He is Lord. And he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what happened? Jesus turns to him. And with those eyes of compassion, he says, what does he say? He says that saying that is so often forgotten and actually not forgotten, but misused. He says, verily, verily, I say unto thee today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Jesus tells this man, listen, I'm telling you today, you will, future tense, be with me in paradise. This man, listen, you may have been like the thief. 
You may be turning away right now. You may be caught up with the crowd and going directions that we ought not be going in these last days of earth's history. But Jesus is looking at all of us. And if we turn to him even now, no matter what we've done, and we say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he too can say to us, if we yield our hearts, if we turn from our sins and accept him as our personal savior, we can find the only way to survival. And once again, this survival I'm not talking about is not temporal. It is ultimately, yes, there is something. We're told that even into the country, we need, we should be seek to be, we're told this seek to be free from the interference of enemies. So there is something about a safety that we even seek by moving out. But ultimately, true survival only takes place in Jesus. And I'm talking about eternal salvation. Regardless of what happens, we could die in a car crash. We could be caught, captured. Some of the people in the last days will be hunted. They will lose their lives for their faith. We're not talking about that survival. But Jesus wants us to be thinking people, spending time in his word, spending time in nature, so that we, that we can be thinkers and not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts, that we can stand for the truth, though the heavens fall. So I want to challenge you. Even if you live in the city, I would challenge you to spend some time, if the weather permits, maybe this Sabbath, going out in nature. And I want to challenge you. I I challenge almost every sermon on this, but I want to challenge you to spend time daily in God's word. This is the standard of truth. This is the message, the love letter from our Savior. And so I I heard someone say, oh, it's legalism to tell people they should spend time in the word of God every day. Can you imagine if somebody said it would be legalism to like read a love letter from your wife every day? Come on. We only make up these silly arguments when we're convicted. The reality is God's word is a love letter to us. Why would we not want to read? And if you don't want to read it daily, Jesus simply says, you need to be born again. He says that with love. And friends, how are you born again? You're born again by the word of God. So I want to challenge you, spend some time in nature on a regular basis. Number two, spend time with Jesus and his word. These are the only ways to have a clear mind so that we can survive eternally in Jesus Christ. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for Jesus. Father, I'm thankful that he is the one who truly sets us free. That we may think freedom is in the sins of this world, in what may cause us to be addicted, pornography or or drugs or alcohol or what have you or or whatever vice we may struggle with but we realize as we're entrapped in those that never is there freedom in those but that true freedom comes when we're set free jesus told us that for freedom he had set us free and father i pray that we would allow him to be the center of our lives that we would spend time with you and your word that we would become like christ in his name we pray This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.